Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week, the most interesting, most weekly, and dare I say most damned podcast out there. (laughs) Speaking of weekly, on behalf of Texas Governor Greg Abbott, we'd like to sincerely apologize for our unplanned outage last week. Fortunately, uh, his media appearances did the job and we are back and ready to go. (laughs) My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. While the CBC in Canada would like to correct the record, particularly about a story about a Florida man's skeleton guitar, it apparently is a hoax. Womp. Oh, <laughs> it's not I a saw real. That. <laughs> Stuck. While the musician dubbed Prince Midnight stands by his claim that he turned his uncle's bones into a, quote, skelicaster. And if you Ugh. can, I highly recommend seeing the pictures because it is pretty metal. He claims to have imported his uncle's medically prepared skeleton from Greece and turned it into a guitar. But local reporters from Florida are casting doubts on the story. Uh, Apparently, he bears a striking resemblance to a known local prankster. (laughs) The previous week, he had told a radio show, As It Happens in Canada, that he'd made the guitar using the medically prepared skeleton of his late uncle Philip, who was a quote, super metalhead who died in a car accident in the mid-90s. So it wasn't even fresh, really. But since then... What's it been doing since then? (laughs) Like, just hanging out in Greece? You know, they keep referring to it as a medically prepared skeleton, so maybe that medical preparation takes a couple decades? I don't know. (laughs) He's been Uh, hanging in a medical school somewhere, and he's just like, I want that back. Right, right. I have to make a guitar and fulfill his metalhead wishes. But in the Tampa Bay Times, they reported that the man calling himself Prince Midnight bears a striking resemblance to an eccentric Tampa hat maker who calls himself Odilon Ozare. Mm. Ozare is listed in the Guinness World Records for two things. One, having the world's tallest hat, and two, longest acrylic nails. (laughs) So when As It Happens reached out to Ozare on his Twitter account for comment, he said, no, I am not Prince Midnight, nor do I have any association with this person. Apparently, Ozare himself also bears a resemblance to a local musician named Justin Arnold, who is the frontman of the punk band Feral Babies. Hmm. Man, like if this is all the same guy, he's got his fingers in a lot of pies. Like I'll respect him for that. <laughs> yep. And and this guy, uh, the punk band frontman Arnold, he had previously tricked the Tampa Bay Times in 2014 into publishing a photo of a two-headed crocodile on its cover, which later reported the photograph as a quote, total croc. <laughs> so this reporter from Tampa, he says he highly suspects Arnold is behind both the Prince Midnight and Odilon Ozare personas, but has no way to prove it definitely. I'm still trying to figure out what is this guitar made of? If it's not a real <laughs> skeleton, is it a fake skeleton? Is it just a skeleton that didn't belong to his uncle? <laughs> like, <laughs> You know, it's hard to say. It looks pretty fake to me. There's no way to really check unless you get your hands on it and do, I guess, mm. like DNA testing or something. But in all of the pictures of this guy, he is wearing different hats or I'm sorry, wigs. They look like wigs, <laughs> different hairstyles. Hats, you say. Uh, yeah. Well, and I'm no. looking at the one yeah. where he's got the longest hat and he's got like long hair 
wearing a mustache. And then when we're looking at the punk rock, you know, Skellicaster one, he's got this like feathered blonde thing. I think at this point I'm hoping it is fake because my fear would be that it's real. And that he's, you know, a a dangerous man who suddenly realized, oh, I could actually get in trouble for this one. I better put out the rumor that it's fake because I dug up a body and turned it into a guitar. That's generous. And he has like four identities. So, I mean, I, for one, am looking forward to the hit movie Odello's Eleven whenever that comes out. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'd watch it. It could air on VH1 behind the music. I mean, it's it's a band. He's a guy. (laughs) Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from gizmodo.com and is titled, Scientists Find a Way to Communicate with Dreaming People. So, in a new study released on Thursday, scientists in four countries say they've shown it's possible to communicate with people while they're lucid dreaming. And at least some of the time, the dreamers were reportedly able to respond to yes or no questions and answer simple math problems, which I cannot imagine doing while asleep, but uh, (laughs) through their facial and eye movements. And afterwards, some recalled actually hearing the questions during their dream. Hmm. This is all done by cognitive neuroscientist and study author Ken Poller and his colleagues at Northwestern University in Chicago, who have been studying the connection between sleeping and memory for years. And it's commonly thought that sleep is crucial to the robust storage of memories, but little is still understood about this process and how dreams might play a role in it. So Poller told Gizmodo in an email, we are investigating dreaming to learn more about why dreams happen and how they might be useful for mental functioning during waking we hypothesize that events of sleep cognition can be beneficial for memory function. Mm. So Pollard's team reasoned that it should be possible to have two-way communication and that the dreamers should be able to recall these conversations. They also theorized that this communication could be induced and replicated under the right conditions in the lab. And as it turns out, they weren't the only scientists to have this idea. At least three other research groups in France, Germany, and the Netherlands have all been pursuing the same goal. Hmm. And Pauler said, The research groups conducted studies independently, and afterwards we discovered that we had done similar studies in different countries. Then we decided to publish all of our results together, cooperatively instead of competitively. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So the study was published Thursday in Current Biology, and the work will also be featured in a PBS documentary airing on Friday, and you can already find the segment on YouTube. (laughs) Altogether, the study involved 36 volunteers, some were self-professed experts in lucid dreaming, particularly a 20-year-old French participant with narcolepsy that made it possible for them to achieve REM sleep, which is the state of sleep where dreams are most common, within the first minute of a 20-minute nap. Wow. Which is pretty wild, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess if you're doing an EEG on these people, you can tell that they're not faking it. They really are asleep. Uh Because otherwise, it's just a person laying there doing math problems with their eyes closed. Like, it's (laughs) not. Yeah, and uh, in the article, they have an image of some of the brainwave scans that they're showing, which, you know, I wouldn't be able to tell you whether a certain line is a lucid dream or not, but I imagine the scientists have figured out what the pattern looks like. Right. Mm -hmm. So other participants had no prior experience with lucid dreaming, but Pollard's team tried to train all their subjects to begin a lucid dream when they heard a certain sound played while sleeping. Some teams used spoken words or tones to communicate, Others relied on flashing lights or lightly touching the sleepers. The article does not mention that any of them use the Blom sound effect from Inception, but I hope they did. Uh, And the volunteers were also monitored through typical sleep measurements like EEG, which records brain activity. Mm -hmm. So 
Across 57 sessions, participants were able to signal that they entered a lucid dream through eye movement 26% of the time. And in these successful sessions, the scientists were able to get at least one correct response to a question via a dreamer's eye movements or facial contortions nearly half of the time. And overall, out of the 158 times they tried to communicate with a lucid dreamer during these sessions, they got a correct response rate of 18%. The most common response, around 60%, was no response at all. But considering the difficulty of, like, actually lucid dreaming and then trying to hear something while you're in the lucid dream and respond at all, 18% still seems really impressively high to me. I would expect it to be something like 5%. Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends on what questions they're asking. Like, if they're yes-no things where you've got a 50-50 chance of being right anyway, I'm less mm. impressed. If they're yeah. like, what's your favorite color or, you know, what, I, I don't know. It just depends. I'm skeptical. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, apparently they're also asking math questions as well. Right. So, I That's mean, that, that part is impressive to me. That's just yeah. Yeah. rude um, to ask a sleeping person to do math. Right. right. <laughs> like they're trying to get some rest, y'all. <laughs> so when the volunteers were asked about their experiences, some reported being able to remember the pre-dream instructions they had received and attempted to carry them out. But Paller says that tantalizing as the study's findings are, they are based on a very small sample size, so Mm. any conclusions need to be viewed with some added caution. But they do demonstrate that it's at least possible to have two-way communication with dreamers. Paller says, We are currently exploring possibilities for running experiences in people's own homes instead of in the sleep laboratory. There may be some advantages to doing so, as people will not be influenced by the unusual environment of a sleep laboratory. And one avenue they're exploring for future research is using a smartphone app that teaches people how to lucid dream and how to get better at it, an app that's actually already available for anyone who's curious. Hmm. And Pollard says the applications could be developed for problem solving, practicing well-honed skills, spiritual development, nightmare therapy, and strategies for other psychological benefits. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see it having the same kind of applications as like hypnosis. Like you're trying to sort of get rid of a horrible traumatic incident or you want to stop smoking. I don't know. Like it feels like there's uses for it, but it feels like it's a long way off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do either of y'all lucid dream at all? I used to. I've had experiences when I was younger and probably more innocent where if I were in a dream and it wasn't going the way that I liked, I could effectively kind of nudge myself awake or tell myself I was dreaming and basically rewind. Hmm. Or I used to be able to tell myself to fly. So if I knew I was in a dream, I'd be like, whoa, I'm dreaming. I could fly right now. And it always felt like swimming in the air to me. So Hmm. it's been a while since I've been able to do it. But yeah, I was able to at least have some fun with it. Yeah. I've, I've had those kind of experiences maybe like once or twice in my life. What I have a lot more often is that sort of half awake, half asleep thing. And Mm -hmm. what ends up happening is I dream that I'm in my bed. I wake up, I go, you know, start my morning routine. And then at (laughs) some point I realize I'm still asleep. And so, you know, it's like I sort of actually wake up in bed and it's this big disappointment. It's like, I haven't actually gotten up yet. But then I fall asleep and the whole thing happens again. And I'll go through like four or five cycles of this getting more and more frustrated every time. Yeah, it's not a pleasant thing. Sleep is not my favorite activity. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the reason I ask is because I can go lucid, not on command, but if I'm in practice, like I'm a decent lucid dreamer. And I've had experiences where you can lucid dream pretty shallowly and actually hear everything that's going on around you Hmm. while you're in a dream. So this idea of like two-way 
communication isn't really that new to me personally, mm. uh, but it's cool that we're putting it under a EEG and you know studying it and finding yeah. ways to quantifying it. Out of it. Yeah, you just got to make sure that none of these scientists are like nefarious, like they're training you to be an assassin with a code word. Like, right. that's, you know. yeah, yeah. I mean, really, let's be real. Like, it's just going to go the same way every other technological advancement goes. And right. We're just, just, just going to try and beam ads into our dreams. That's all <laughs> exactly. this is about. Exactly. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, this one comes from Zachary Crockett at The Hustle. It's called The Crazy Market for the World's Most Expensive Pet Fish. Oh. And when they say crazy, they do mean crazy. The fish in question is the Asian arowana, which is endangered in the wild and therefore completely illegal to buy, sell, or own in the United States. But elsewhere in the world, the Asian arowana is a legal and highly coveted luxury good. In addition to being a status symbol among Chinese businessmen and European fish collectors, they are particularly prized by members of the Yakuza. And a prime mm. specimen can cost more than $100,000. What? Yeah. Wow. So how did we get here, the article asks. Because for hundreds of years, the Asian arowana was just a basic sustenance fish from the swamps of Malaysia. They were a cheap meal that no one had ever heard of outside of, like, local fish markets. Then, in 1975, the CITES Treaty, or the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, was signed by 80 countries in Washington, D.C. as part of a general effort toward conservation. It covered 5,000 animal species and 29,000 plant species and wasn't even really that restrictive. It just sort of put some general licensing measures in place to ensure that these countries were practicing good management of their endangered populations. Mm -hmm. And the Asian arowana was on the list, not even as an endangered animal, just a threatened one. But it was hmm. enough to give it this air of mystique, especially in neighboring countries that had never heard of it before but were now being told they couldn't have it. So Malaysian fishermen figured out they could make more money by smuggling them into Taiwanese markets instead of selling them locally. And its reputation spread until it became a veblen good, which is apparently what economists call it when, for reasons of basic human insanity, higher prices actually lead to higher demand. Basically, people mm. want to show off how much they've spent on this thing. The more you raise the price, the more they're desperate for it. So you're saying it's fish coin. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> or a fish bubble, if you will. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of parallels between this and like the Dutch tulip mania. Like yeah. it, it gets pretty weird. So in China in particular, it became known as the dragon fish. And it developed a reputation for bringing wealth and prosperity. And some people even started telling stories about Asian arowanas jumping out of their tanks in businessmen's offices as a warning when they were about to sign a bad deal. And so initially they were just like, oh, a delicacy to eat. But then they quickly shifted to being pets. So then Sites comes back and said, oh, man, we never meant for this to happen. OK, here's what we're going to do. We're going to allow people to have commercial farms for these fish. And that'll flood the market and people will stop wanting them so much. And again, it had the completely opposite effect because <laughs> before most people weren't going to go into the swamps of Malaysia every day to harvest these fish. But now they only had to go once and bring back a collection of them to stock their new fish farm. Mm. So all these people descended upon them. And almost overnight, the Asian arowana went from being threatened to being actually severely endangered in the wild. Oh, wow. And once they were endangered, more restrictions kicked in, which just shot up the price even more. So these days, the trade in the Asian arowana is a $200 million industry. Oh my and gosh. an average specimen will sell for about $3,000. A flawless specimen goes for about $30,000. And rare colors can go for even more. 
One breeder who specializes in a strain of albino Asian arowanas said he sold one of his fish to a high-ranking member of the Chinese government for $300,000. Oh, my goodness. Other things that can raise the price are a larger dorsal fin and a quality pedigree, meaning they can trace their ancestry back a shorter distance to a wild-caught arowana. And all of this has been documented in a new book by Emily Voigt called The Dragon Behind the Glass, and she says that there is now a thriving secondary market for fish beauticians who will perform plastic surgery on your pet Asian arowana to make it more aesthetically pleasing, which financially makes sense. You buy a $3,000 fish and then you give it surgery and turn it into a $30,000 fish because the whole thing is about conspicuous consumption anyway. And it's actually relatively inexpensive. They can do eye lifts, chin jobs, and tail alterations that range from $60 to $90 each. And they even, they have a picture in the article of a fish beautician doing surgery on a fish in like maybe four inches of water. It's laying on its side. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. Voight also tells the story of Kenny Yap, also known as Kenny the Fish who runs the largest Asian arowana farm in Singapore, which is listed on the Singapore Stock Exchange and sells about 7,000 fish annually for a total of $30 million a year. And obviously, anything that lucrative is a big target for theft. So Kenny has protected his farm with concrete walls, barbed wire, watchtowers, and dogs. In 2004, a Malaysian shop owner was even murdered by thieves who were after his treasure trove of roughly 20 Asian arowana. Oh. Wow. Voigt goes so far as to call the fish an agent of chaos. <laughs> so up to this point, other than the murder and theft, of course, all of this is legal outside of the United States. But once the Asian arowana crossed the line into being officially endangered, it became illegal in America thanks to the Endangered Species Act of 1973. But... For the most dedicated fanatics, that's no obstacle. Glenn Mickle, a Canadian who runs a private Facebook group for fans of the Asian arowana, claims that he personally knows at least 10 Americans who secretly own Asian arowanas, and many others have actually been caught in the act. In 2010, seven people were arrested in Los Angeles for attempting to smuggle in 12 juvenile Asian arowana from Indonesia. In 2011, a 49-year-old Chinese food delivery driver was caught trying to import 16 fish into New York City in a suitcase. Ah! In 2014, two men in San Diego were caught trying to sell 13 of them on Craigslist for $2,800 each. And in 2018, a Chicago chef was busted for trying to buy 24 Asian arowana for his home aquarium. And they don't name the chef, but to be able to afford that many, it's got to be somebody semi-famous. Right. So now I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine, like, is it, you know, Mario Batali? Who is Who would have a fish <laughs> fetish? <laughs> the thing is, though, perpetrators usually receive a sentence of probation and fines of between $5,000 and $15,000, which is frankly not that much Mm-mm. when you think about how much the fish cost them in the first place. It's mm-hmm. just the price of doing business at that point. Yeah. As the article notes, the best advice in those situations applies to both fish and people. Don't get caught. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. They are pretty fish. I mean, I can imagine if I had a tank, I'd want one. And they come in lots of different colors. There's designer breeds at this point. All the different farms sort of specialize. And like the Dutch tulip mania, there's people who like, they'll find a blue one and then they'll like try to murder all the other blue fish. So they have the only blue Asian arowana. Yeah, it's it's a really wild market, and it's been going on for some 40 years now, so clearly it's not slowing down. Yeah, I looked up the lifespan of the Asian arowana, and it's only 10 to 15 years. So, I mean, I don't know. I guess if the market's been around for 40 years, uh, you're looking at a long-term, if very illegal investment. I don't know. (laughs) It's wild. 
I mean, I think they're probably kind of like tattoos. Once you get one, you have to get more. <laughs> so there's probably like it's not like a bunch of people who each own one. It's like a couple people who are like, I have a pond of 30 of them. Oh, and I have to tell you about this. There was this horrible image of Kenny Yap, who is apparently kind of big on Instagram or something with his fish. And he takes pictures getting into the pond with the fish. So he's like, his arms are upraised oh. and he's like, oh, I'm swimming with my fish. Except then the caption, you couldn't see anything because the water was dark green. But the caption helpfully noted that he swims naked with the fish. <laughs> So I was like, I don't know that that detail needed to be in there. I could have just imagined that he had a swimsuit on under there. This is like straight up Bond villain behavior. It really Mm -hmm. is. I mean, I'm sure some of these people are going to have to go to AA, you know, Arowana Anonymous. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. Gizmodo tells us that the newest highest resolution images of DNA have revealed something very interesting. It's surprisingly jiggly. All huh. right. Like, <laughs> that makes sense. Like jello? Like just It's kind of like a twisted up slinky, I guess. It I is. Um, scientists have captured the highest resolution images ever taken of DNA, and these hidden movements, and here's the caveat, were revealed by computer simulations fed with the highest resolution images ever taken of a single molecule of DNA. So this is exposing previously unseen behaviors in the self-replicating molecule. And this research could eventually lead to the development of powerful new genetic therapies. Obviously, DNA is extremely small. And so it's been really difficult to see, especially when it comes to that helical structure. The author of the paper, Mm. Alice Pine, and a material scientist at the University of Sheffield said, the videos we have developed enable us to observe DNA twisting in a level of detail that has never been seen before. So previously, we've been able to use microscopes to look at DNA in the twisted ladder-like configuration, but these were limited to static views of the molecule. And what scientists have not been able to see is how the intense coiling of DNA affects its double helical structure. So what they did is they combined high-resolution atomic force microscopy with molecular dynamics computer simulations. And so obviously with computer simulations, there's kind of an element of guesswork in there, right? Like this is what we're anticipating based on the data that we're feeding into it. Hmm. They analyze DNA mini circles, which are when a small strand is joined at both ends, kind of like an infinity symbol. And Mm -hmm. they've been described before, and they're believed to be important indicators of health. And these microscopic images of the DNA mini circles in the relaxed position, which means no twists, those had very little movement. But if you twisted it a little bit more, it basically brought the loop to life and resulted in vigorous movement. So maybe they helped the DNA to find binding partners or possibly to facilitate growth. They hope to someday be able to control it because science. Um, Right. You want to control everything. (laughs) That's your job. But they're also hoping it could lead to the development of completely new medical interventions, including improved DNA-based diagnostics and therapeutics. I'm kind of having my mind blown right now. Like, I guess I never really thought about it, but I always imagined that DNA was like one really long continuous strand because it's a set of instructions. Like, Mm -hmm. if there's little loops that are just some random page out of the instructions, That seems insane to me. How could you possibly know what part of the instructions that little bit of DNA is from? I just, I'm, yeah, it's like a bunch of gummy worms. Mm. That's, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little more comfortable imagining my cells full of gummy worms than like magical stuff I can't understand. Like gummy worms, I can understand. I get that, you know. Both brought to you by science. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. 
This article comes to us from TheGuardian.com and is titled End of Neanderthals Linked to Flip of Earth's Magnetic Poles, study suggests. Oh, this is one of those things that freaks me out because, uh, you know, it's like we're overdue for it. And I'm constantly imagining doomsday scenarios where the pole flips and like all of our <laughs> yeah. electrical grids go down. Everything goes to chaos. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think this article is going to make you feel better. <laughs> oh, good. All right. Cool. <laughs> I mean, we're due for a lot of that stuff, you know, poles mm-hmm. flipping, the big one in California. Yeah, Yellowstone. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all yeah, going to go to hell. All that, all that stuff, yeah. So let's get into it. <laughs> right, uh, right. <laughs> researchers say the flipping of the Earth's magnetic poles together with a drop in solar activity 42,000 years ago could have generated an apocalyptic environment that may have played a role in major events ranging from the extinction of megafauna to the end of the Neanderthals. So, recap, the Earth's magnetic field acts as a protective shield against cosmic radiation, which is very damaging, but when the poles switch, as has occurred many times in the past, the protective shield weakens dramatically and leaves the planet exposed to high-energy particles. One temporary flip of the poles, known as the Lachamps excursion, happened 42,000 years ago and lasted for about a 1,000 years. Previous work found little evidence that the event had a profound impact on the planet, possibly because the focus had not been on the period during which the poles were actually shifting. Professor Chris Turney of the University of New South Wales and co-author of the study says it probably would have seemed like the end of days. (laughs) The team has collectively termed this period the Adams event, a nod to Douglas Adams, uh, author of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, in which 42 was said to be the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. Because it's 42,000 years ago. I like that. There you go. Yeah. Writing in the journal Science, Turney and his colleagues describe how they carried out radiocarbon analyses of the rings of ancient kari trees preserved in northern New Zealand wetlands, some of which were more than 42,000 years old. This allowed them to track over time the rise in carbon-14 levels in the atmosphere produced by increasing levels of high-energy cosmic radiation reaching the Earth during the Lachamps excursion. As a result, they're able to date the atmospheric changes in more detail than offered by previous records, such as mineral deposits. They then examined numerous records and materials from all over the world, including from lake and ice cores, and found that a host of major environmental changes occurred at the same time as the carbon-14 levels peaked. Turney says, We see this massive growth of the ice sheet over North America. We see tropical rain belts in the West Pacific shifting dramatically at that point, and then also wind belts in the Southern Ocean and a drying out in Australia. The researchers also used a model to examine how the chemistry of the atmosphere might change if the Earth's magnetic field was lost, and there was a prolonged period of low solar activity, which would have further reduced Earth's protection against cosmic radiation. Ice core records suggest such dips in solar activity, known as the Grand Solar Minima, coincided with the Lachamps excursion. Hmm. And the results reveal that the atmospheric changes could have resulted in huge shifts in the climate, electrical storms, and widespread colorful aurora. So at least, you know, things look pretty while everything is exploding. (laughs) Uh, And as well as the environmental changes potentially accelerating the growth of ice sheets and contributing to the extinction of Australian megafauna, the team suggests they could also be linked to the emergence of red ochre handprints, the suggestion being that humans may have been using the pigment as a sunscreen against the increased levels of ultraviolet radiation Ooh. hitting the Earth oh. as a result of the depletion of the ozone. That's really fascinating, because that's something that they've noted before is like all of a sudden in the historical record, mm-hmm. people like widely, widely spread out started doing these red handprints in the cave paintings. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Who's, who came up with that idea? Why is that suddenly everyone's idea at the same time? 
But if you've got that junk all over your hands, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And and when I think about, you know, any time I think of hand cave paintings, it's like the red hand. Yeah. So yeah. iconic at this point. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Neanderthals, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> they also suggest the rise in the use of caves by our ancestors around this time, as well as the rise in cave art. Uh, might be down to the fact that underground spaces offered shelter from the harsh conditions. And the situation may have also boosted competition, potentially contributing to the end of the Neanderthals. The Earth's magnetic field has weakened by about 9% over the past 170 years, and the researchers say another flip could be on the cards, and such a situation could have a dramatic effect, not least by devastating electricity grids and satellite networks. And I'll also mention that we are soon approaching, or already in, another solar minima. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're at a very low historical sunspot point right now. And, uh, yeah, that, that's, you yeah. know, something to think about. See, and here's the thing. Like, the Neanderthals already had those survival skills. Like, they knew how to hunt. They knew how to live on the land and start a fire and whatever. I don't know how to do any of that stuff. I'm completely <laughs> reliant on electricity, as this past week has shown all of us mm, in Texas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not even going to last for a week. At least the Neanderthals took a thousand years to die out over this process. Right? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know where, where the nearest cave is. Yeah. I don't know how to get red ochre. <laughs> That's right. like, come on. <laughs> so Richard Horn, the head of space, weather, and atmosphere at the British Antarctic Survey, who was not involved in the work, said that the chemical changes in the upper atmosphere predicted by the study chimed with what had been measured at Halley Research Station in Antarctica during strong but short-lived events in which energetic particles were emitted from the sun. Dr. Anders Svensson of the University of Copenhagen, however, said that ice cores from Greenland and Antarctica do not show evidence of any dramatic climate change that occurred around the time of the Lachamps excursion, but that did not rule out it having an impact. Chris Stringer, who studies human origins at the Natural History Museum in London, he said that the greater use of caves as shelter was plausible, but that the link to a rise in cave art was less convincing because paintings of pigs were apparently being produced in Sulawesi in Indonesia well before the Lashams excursion. Hmm. And they're really doing their due diligence here. Finally, Dr. Richard Staff, a research fellow in quaternary geochronology at the University of Glasgow, said the study was exciting and noted that it could lead to further investigation into the environmental and evolutionary effects of other large dramatic downturns in the Earth's magnetic field strength further back in time. Well, that's good. So we're going to know exactly how we're going to die out when we (laughs) die out. Yeah, exactly. Which, depending on how you interpret it, is either great or awful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's very wholesome. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, we're back with Gizmodo again. This one's called That Time a Canadian Town Derailed a Diesel Train and Drove It Down the Street to Provide Emergency Power. Oh, Uh, wow. Yeah. It says it all in the title, really. It's a fun little tale (laughs) of the kind of wintertime ingenuity that was sadly lacking in our own city last week. It happened back in 1998 when the town of Boucherville, Quebec, was struck by three ice storms in quick succession and lost power to over 1.5 million people in the dead of winter. Obviously, Quebec is no stranger to snowy weather, but the key here is that rather than fluffy little snowflakes, ice storms happen right at that intersection of freezing and melting temperatures and cause a thick layer of solid ice to build up on every surface they touch, which can add thousands of pounds of weight and is enough to bring down tree branches, power lines, and even the towers that hold up those power lines, which take a lot longer to repair than the power lines themselves. So the mayor of Boucherville, Francine Gadbois, jumped into action. It turns out, and I did not know this, that diesel train engines don't actually run on diesel fuel, so to speak. 
The fuel is used to power onboard generators that create electricity to power the train's electric motors. So basically, they're giant mm. rolling generators. Mm, and wow. for whatever reason, Gadbois knew enough about trains to know this handy fact. And after a few calls to the Canadian National Railway, the diesel locomotive M420W3502 rolled down the tracks into Boucherville to help. The rail line was close to the town city hall, but not quite close enough. So a crane was used to lift the diesel engine off its tracks and place it on Boulevard de Montarville. From there, it completed the last 1,000 feet of its journey just rolling down the street under its own power, which you don't think about trains being able to drive wherever they want. But of course, outdoor diesel train tracks are just strips of metal. They're not electrified like subway tracks. Unfortunately, the asphalt wasn't equipped to handle the locomotive's weight, so it cut deep grooves into the road that later had to be repaired. But I guess they figured a lot of things were going to have to be repaired after the storm, mm -hmm. so why not? City workers then ran cables from the diesel engine to the nearby municipal buildings, and its throttle was set to a speed which would produce roughly 375 kilowatts of power at 60 hertz, which was well below the locomotive's maximum power of around 2,000 horsepower, but is the alternating frequency that the North American power system runs on. It wasn't enough electricity to power more than a few buildings, but it allowed authorities to centralize their planning and provided a warming center to anyone who could get there. And a lot of people actually did come, not so much for the warming center, but to take pictures with the train that <laughs> right. was sitting in the middle of the town square. <laughs> Once they saw that it worked, there was actually a plan to get a second diesel engine in to power a local high school for a second warming center. But that fell through once they realized that the train would have to cross a highway overpass that would probably collapse under its 260,000 pounds. Oof. So they just stuck it next to the first one as an emergency backup. You know, the plan wasn't without its drawbacks. <laughs> Aside from the repairs to the road, both engines had to undergo repairs to their gearboxes when the crisis was over. But in a life-threatening emergency, you do what you have to yeah, do, yeah. at least if you're Canadian, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I, it made me wonder, like, could we have done that or is it not even feasible? Like, I don't know what kind of trains we have nowadays. This mm. was 20 years ago and maybe Amtrak doesn't use diesel engines anymore. Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like using diesel to power a generator that powers a electric engine is kind of like cheating like <laughs> right. can you really call it a diesel train like come on right because diesel engine sounds cooler it's like yeah, yeah we're a big strong cool. engine i mean that's apparently a slang term for like rad uh oh, diesel it? bro yeah i don't know i don't i do not remember where they say that but people say that somewhere because it sounds cool i'm old and out of touch i haven't even heard that one i've given up i don't understand anymore okay. there's right. no no point yeah. in trying. I'm just going to sink into my decrepitude and be happy with it. <laughs> the key to happiness. <laughs> yeah. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Future Human, which is an offshoot of Medium.com, is letting everyone know that many Neanderthal brains could reveal the origins of psychiatric disorders. We are not done with Neanderthals hmm. today, y'all. <laughs> mini brains, though. Like, okay, tell me. <laughs> tell me how they made a mini brain. Well, they are lab-grown, and they refer to them as organoids. And if you want to oh. see a picture of them, they kind of look like two grains of cooked rice together and kind of rolled them around. But researchers at the University of California in San Diego used stem cells to create miniature brains containing DNA from Neanderthals, who are our closest human relatives. 
and the research revealed that a genetic variant harbored by Neanderthals led to striking changes in the organoids, which suggests that Hmm. the gene played a major role in the development of the modern human brain. And they're basically no bigger than a pea. These so-called brain organoids could help scientists understand how our brains evolved to become so sophisticated, which could also shed light on how brain disorders like depression, anxiety, autism, and schizophrenia arose. The hypothesis right now is that the sophistication of the human brain came with an evolutionary trade-off. The more sophisticated our brains, the higher the probability or susceptibility for things to go wrong, right? Sure. More parts to break, yeah. Exactly. Mo brain, mo problems. So (laughs) while there's growing evidence that animals might suffer from anxiety and depression and some monkeys exhibit autism-like symptoms, schizophrenia seems uniquely human. So the lab is interested in finding Hmm. out the biological underpinnings behind why we are so susceptible to schizophrenia and other psychiatric and neurodevelopmental disorders. There was a 2016 study that suggested that schizophrenia is a modern development, one that emerged after humans diverged from Neanderthals. Many of us actually harbor between 1% to 2% of Neanderthal mm-hmm. DNA even today. <laughs> yeah. Have you guys done the, like, the 23andMe or whatever, the various DNA tests uh, that are out there? I have. I have done one. I've... But I didn't know that they would actually report whether we have D- Neanderthal DNA. Mine didn't. So now I feel like I'm missing out. Mine did. Oh. Yeah. On 23andMe. And, and it was cra- it was like 5% too. It was way high. I was like, I, I don't like that oh. at all. <laughs> well, um... <laughs> hey, maybe that means you'll survive the coming polar shift. Or maybe it means... You really won't. I don't right. Know, probably not. It probably means I'm susceptible and I got a lot of ticking time bombs for <laughs> psychiatric diseases in there. It's not it's good. It's okay. We're all susceptible. <laughs> right. To right. Uh, sadly, Jennifer, you have drawn the correct conclusion or what this one study showed, which was having right, right. the Neanderthal genes increases the risk of depression and addiction. So sorry. However, there was um, another article linked in here that went into various theories that explain why our brains evolved to be depressed. So it is a sign of evolution of higher thinking. It's useful. <laughs> yeah. There are definitely useful applications of anxiety and depression. It's just a matter of putting that in the right context. But let's get back to these little organoids, which is such a cute little name for this. Mm-hmm. They first compared the genomes of modern humans to those of Neanderthals and Denisovans, which was another group of early homo and they were looking for genetic differences that could explain how modern humans evolved. And so they found 61 protein coding genes that differ between us and our ancestral relatives. And then from there, they looked at genes involved in early brain development and narrowed in on one in particular, Nova 1, which is known to be a master regulator that affects the expression of other genes. And so Hmm. the team then took skin cells from a neurotypical person, someone who doesn't have (laughs) neurodevelopmental disorders, and transformed them into stem cells, which have the ability to specialize into any cell type, right? That's why stem cells are so powerful in particular. Right. Then they used the gene editing tool known as CRISPR to bestow the Mm -hmm. stem cells with the archaic version of Nova 1 found in Neanderthals. Using substances known as growth factors, they coaxed the stem cells into neurons, which after months formed into tiny three-dimensional balls of brain tissue. I mean, could they grow them bigger? Is it just a question of time where they might have grown an entire full brain and it could grow sentience? (laughs) You ask a question that I had to skip to the very bottom of the article to note. The team is not worried that Neanderthal Uh organoids will become conscious anytime soon. And he says the possibility of growing a thinking Neanderthal brain in the lab is still 
very far off. Not impossible or even implausible.、Yeah. Just we can kick that can down the road and sleep a little bit、yeah. better at night for now. <laughs> and he's certainly not saying they're not going to try. He's like, it's just going to take us a while. <laughs> yeah, it's maybe code in the science world for we're going to need more funding. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> <Yeah> . <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. We're so glad to be back. There are many other articles on Damn Interesting that we did not have a chance to get to. Some of those include YouTube AI blocked Chess Channel after confusing black and white for racist slurs. Traffic noise is a silent killer. And Disney once tried to make an animated Catcher in the Rye. So all that and more can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you'd like to support us and help us keep these microphones powered up, you can go to Patreon.com/DamnInterestingWeek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisberg Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye bye.